I'm sure you've seen the photos. Boris Johnson at a party in Downing Street raises difficult questions for him, even more difficult questions for the Metropolitan Police. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani for the analysis you've been craving. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, great pleasure to be joining you this evening. What a fantastic, evergreen topic to talk about, the seeming ineptitude of the Metropolitan Police Service. That is the angle of this that I find most shocking. Obviously, I think, you know, people's anger about Partygate, absolutely justified, absolutely legitimate. I have to say, on one level, I'm I'm finding the story a little bit repetitive, but the part that I find genuinely interesting here is the role of the Met, so we will talk about that. New photographs have emerged of partying inside Downing Street, and they feature the Prime Minister. They've blurred out faces of other partygoers, but the four images show Johnson and several others raising their full glasses in a toast. On the table in the foreground are bottles of wine, champagne and gin, as well as various snacks. Here's Johnson again, presumably in the middle of a hilarious anecdote, his drink firmly in hand. You can even see his red ministerial briefing case on the chair in front of him. Photographs are of a party held on the 13th of November 2020, when Johnson's communication chief Lee Kane left his job. It's an event about which Johnson has been clear no rules were broken. That included in December last year when he said this in Parliament. Prime Minister, tell the House whether there was a party in Downing Street on the 13th of November. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, no, but I'm sure that whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. As to whether the photo definitively shows a party, I think Johnson might have a case there. I, I, I could imagine going to that event and not calling it a party. Definitely a gathering. It certainly doesn't look, though, as if rules were not broken at the time that photo was taken. This was the law. It stated, participation in indoor gatherings. No person may participate in a gathering which consists of two or more people and takes place indoors, including indoors within a private dwelling. And then it says, to paragraph one, does not apply if any of the exceptions set out in regulation 11 apply. And what were those exceptions? Well, here's the relevant section, and we've picked out the relevant clause. So exception to gatherings necessary for certain purposes. And then we can see if the gathering is reasonably necessary for work purposes, then it is allowed to go ahead. That, to me, didn't look necessary for work purposes. Lots of empty bottles of booze um, on the table, food. It's difficult to say that didn't break the rules or that it was reasonably necessary. Boris Johnson, I can already guess what he is going to say. He's going to say, look, whatever you guys think, the police have looked at this and they've judged no rules were broken. And indeed, today, ITV's Paul Brand said this. New, number 10 tell me Sue Gray had photos of Lee Kane's leaving party and they believe they are very similar to the ones we've obtained. Sue Gray passed all her evidence to the Met, which again raises the question of why police didn't find the PM given what the pics show. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. We're told the police have seen either that photo or a very similar photo. They've looked at that event. They've said no rules were broken. We've just shown our audience what the rules were at the time. What the hell is going on here? It's a great question. I think as well, additionally, is even if they thought that political favoritism and something resembling a cover-up 
was possible in terms of allowing the prime minister to get away with this, surely, surely they were aware that countervailing evidence showing that number 10, showing that Boris Johnson, demonstrating his guilt, would have come to light eventually. This is, after all, an age of the internet and how, you know, digital photographs and videos, is, um, as Allegra Strassen found out, her own personal misery can change things very quickly. We talked about this at the time, actually, with Allegra Strassen, the video. Of course, she's the only high-profile person to really suffer any consequence as a result of shenanigans in Downing Street over the last six months. They didn't happen in the last six months. They've come to light over the last six months, uh, seven months, eight months. It's dragged on now a hell of a long time. And we said, look, it's easy to speculate about these things. And he said, she said, the minute you have a video or a photograph demonstrating guilt that clearly very difficult to change the political messaging around it. Very difficult to dispute it. Uh, slightly similar problem for, for Starmer, far smaller. Uh, but once you have that digital image out there, it just makes it that bit more real for the political conversation writ large. So I, I don't think this is going to bring down the Johnson government. Uh, I don't think this is a game changer. I agree with your initial points and misgivings about Partygate. But I think it does suggest that the Metropolitan Police Service have a few questions to answer here. This has been, after all, an appalling 12 months for them, with Sarah Everard, Cressida Dick, uh, various other stories coming to light, of course. Koshka Duffy, with her personal story of malfeasance and malpractice uh, coming to light with the Metropolitan Police Service. So that, to me, I think, Michael, is, is the main thing here, and I agree with you. What the hell are the police thinking? And, and you know, we need an investigation into this, but who the hell is going to conduct the investigation? The civil service? The Metropolitan Police, uh, Police Service, the Home Office, the Prime Minister. You're looking at widespread corruption, malpractice, and a basic inability to do the job at repeated levels of government. It's a big problem. And it tells us a hell of a lot about Britain in 2021, 2022 even. There were tweets today. So I didn't see Chris Mason, who's the new political editor on, I, I presume he was speaking on the BBC News at six, but there was a, a tweet from the editor of Newsnight saying Chris Mason is saying he's been told that this party was instigated by Boris Johnson, but he only stayed for 10 minutes. And someone else who was at that party was fined by the Metropolitan Police. So it just sounds all very bizarre, as if it's sort of like, so his excuse, Boris Johnson was only there for 10 minutes, so he wasn't fined. Obviously, there was nothing in the law to say that you're allowed to, you know, gather for up to 10 minutes. But the key part of, of that revelation seems to be that Boris Johnson instigated it. And you'd be really pissed off if you were one of the civil servants there. I mean, as I say, ITV have blurred out that picture, so we don't know exactly who was there. But if you were one of the people who, by definition, are more junior than, than Boris Johnson, because you know there is no higher authority than him, he's instigated a party. You've attended a party that he's invited you to, and you've got fined for attending when he hasn't got fined for organizing it. The Met Police are, at this point, going to have to come out and explain what the hell they were thinking, because... No one is going to have any faith in them at this point. You know, we talk, as Aaron said, a, a lot on this show about the failings of the Metropolitan Police. But often, you know, I imagine if you're sort of centre-right or whatever, you'll say, oh, this is just lefties, you know, going on about their favourite issues, sexism, racism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is an issue which, you know, even rabid right-wingers seem to care about. So uh, I can't see how the Met aren't going to get attacked from all angles here. Um, let's have a quick look at some more reaction. This is from Labour Deputy Leader. Angela Rayner. If you look at how many fixed penalty notices have been given on numerous occasions in Downing Street now, this is not, you know, he thought he was at some work 
meeting and then all of a sudden it's become you know a party no this is time and time again there has been parties that have been going on in number 10 we've had these over 100 fixed penalty notices given we was in Durham for work we've both said we'd resign if we were given a fixed penalty notice because we're both confident that we were working Boris Johnson cannot look at those pictures cannot be at those events on numerous occasions and think that that was work he's toasting smiling drinking when people's loved ones were you know when you look at the death rates that we had at that time when we had daily uh, addresses from the prime minister saying we've all got to do the right thing it's pretty appalling and shabby that he thinks he can get away with it and laugh at the british public in the way that he that he has it's not acceptable he knows it he should have gone a long time ago it's now time to give up and resign now all the polling all the focus groups i've seen reported on show that you know the british public do basically agree with everything angela rayner said there Aaron, where do you think this story is going next? Obviously, we're supposed to have the Sue Gray report finally out this week. That's supposed to have a bunch of photos in it. And, you know, various people have been briefing that that could be really damaging for the prime minister. At the same time, I'm sure, you know, Tory backbench MPs are a little bit bored of this story. I don't think they're going to topple him. They don't have a, you know, anointed successor. Where's this going now? If this was a story in isolation, I would say it's a waste of everyone's time, which is what I've said previously. But I think coupled with the cost of living crisis, it, what it does mean is that the government now can't get ahead of the major story for 2022, which is rising inflation. Michael, you know, last week, we, we were no longer in the realm of abstraction when uh, there was the announcement of 9% inflation. You know, we're now looking potentially by the end of this year at 10, 11, 12, you know, 15% on inflation. Who knows? Dub double digit inflation now seems highly likely. Interest rates going to two, two and a half, three percent 3%. These are things which will hammer Middle England. Middle England, as I wrote in an article for Navarra Media, Middle England is about to be monstered by the cost of living crisis on both inflation and on interest rates, and perhaps also, including all that, uh, perceived fall in, in house prices. So they'll have a declining asset in terms of value, their ability to pay for things will be fallen because of inflation, and their ability to withdraw credit, perhaps based against the value of their asset, i.e. their house, again, will be, will be diminishing. I think all of that, is a, is a huge problem. And people really, let's be honest, outside the Westminster bubble, outside the, you know, the people that attend the Spectator or the Guardian summer parties and the policy wonks and the people that love to get pissed around Westminster and uh, think basically, you know, it's a uh, dynasty for ugly people. Outside of those kind of circles, which are very limited, realistically, it's just several thousand people, although they absolutely dominate our political culture in this country. Most people care about the cost of living crisis. But what this does is, I think, put the government in an even worse light as they try to address that. And I think they will try and address it. I think it's too big for them to kind of shamble on through the rest of 22. We'll talk about that more later. And I, I think there's an accumulation now for, for, for Downing Street and for Boris Johnson of, of problems, which is inescapable. I don't think he's going to go. I don't think he's going to be toppled. But previously, I was quite circumspect about the logic that this was somehow going to do him in. I, I never thought that. And I still don't think that. But the fact that you still have a story which after six, seven, eight months, despite having a police investigation, you're about to have the Sue Gray report, et cetera, doesn't seem to be going away. There's a bad stink there. And I do think that's a problem for the Conservative Party. That doesn't mean I think that Labour make hay from it. I think Labour have actually quite similar problems. I think for Keir Starmer, presenting himself as this man of integrity won't work because while there are misgivings about Boris Johnson, there are also misgivings about him. But I think it will contribute, as you sort of hinted at uh, just a moment ago, Michael, to this idea that Middle England, Waitrose shopping, centre-right voters may begin to choose the Liberal Democrats over the Conservative Party in, in, in quite significant numbers.
I think, to be honest, Labour probably could benefit from it. I mean, I'm not obviously excited by what they're, what they're offering. But I do think people are looking at that picture of Keir Starmer in a very different way to which they're looking at those pictures of, of Boris Johnson. And I also think the reason the pictures are incredibly relevant, and I think they're probably the one thing that Boris Johnson should be worried about, is because, as I say, the details of this, it's getting a little bit tedious hearing, you know, I've lost track of all the dates. And, you know, I talk about this all the time. I'm supposed to be on top of this, but it's the 13th of November this, and it was the party for Dominic Cummings leave it. You know, it's hard to get on top of it. But I think the universal reaction from the public when they see pictures of Boris Johnson at these parties with booze in his hand, laughing and joking, is quite a visceral disgust. And while I don't, you know, I, I agree with you that essentially I don't think MPs are going to topple him. I do think it's very hard to to recover from that. And I kind of doubt he will, fundamentally. I, I do think that he probably will no- lose the next general election. And, and I think Keir Starmer, as much as I find him a very boring and uninspiring leader of the Labour Party, you know, has every chance of becoming Prime Minister. Let's go straight to our next story. The voices calling for a windfall tax to tackle the growing cost of energy have been growing louder and louder, and they've come from unexpected directions. We'll start with Michael Lewis, boss of energy supplier E.ON. He appeared on BBC Sunday morning and began by saying something scary and then something surprising. What we do know is that we are seeing a significant number of people in fuel poverty. That's to say more than 10% of their disposable income spent on energy. And that's risen to around 20%. And in October, our model suggests that that could rise to 40% if the government doesn't intervene in some way. The windfall tax on oil and gas companies, is it something you would support? Well, for us, the most important thing is that the government intervenes. It's up to the government to decide how they fund that. All right. All I would say is um, it's important that when they uh, are taxing to address this challenge, that they tax those with the broadest shoulders. And the energy boss wasn't alone in communicating his concern about people facing energy poverty. He sent checks to people, and not unlike what they do in the US. And I think that's probably the most straightforward way to help people. Without getting into the intricacies of all the benefit system, you just send households on lower incomes and middle incomes okay. a check in the post. The architect of austerity saying the crisis is so bad that the government should be sending people checks in the post. Of course, I take Osborne's screeds on poverty with a pinch of salt, but it is notable that even he was more amenable than our current chancellor to a windfall tax. Back in 2011, he raised the tariff on North Sea supplies from 20% to 32%. His justification at the time, when oil prices are high, as now, UK oil and gas production is more profitable at such times, so it is fair that companies should contribute more. Are you listening, Rishi? Now, of course, I don't normally want chancellors to take advice from George Osborne, but the distance between what our government are refusing to do and what even someone like George Osborne thought was a sensible policy is quite extraordinary. Also, Johnson's former financial secretary to the Treasury, Jesse Norman, has this weekend come out in favour of a windfall tax. So he tweeted, I don't know the Treasury's mind regarding a windfall tax on the oil and gas sector. Few would embrace the idea with enthusiasm in normal times, but these are extraordinary times, and the arguments against it at present are very weak. A new oil and gas levy would need to be temporary and well-defined. As several present and former oil and gas CEOs have noted, it won't much change companies' investment plans or the incentive to invest. These are not profits any firm was relying upon before 2022. 
such an oil and gas levy would be equitable. First, if it were not implemented, then any revenues would otherwise have to be derived from sources that might well make the current cost of living crisis worse for many people. And second, many commentators seem to have forgotten that the government hugely supported the oil and gas sector when tens of thousands of jobs were at risk after the oil price crash in 2014. Do those who oppose a levy now on free market grounds also believe that 2014 intervention was mistaken? Do they think oil and gas companies should enjoy a one-way bet in which they benefit from public support when prices fall, but make no extra contribution when prices rise? It's a sound argument, sounds reasonable to me, and there are signs Johnson is wavering. No option is off the table, let's be absolutely clear about that. I'm not attracted uh, intrinsically uh, to new taxes, but as I've said throughout, we've got to do what we can, and we will, to look after people through the aftershocks of, of COVID, uh, through the current uh, pressures on energy prices that we're seeing uh, post-COVID and with what's going on in, in Russia. This thing is going to go on. Everybody can see the, uh, the, the increase in energy prices. Uh, there is more that we're going to do. Uh, but, you know, again, you just, have to, you just have to wait a little bit longer. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. Is a U-turn incoming? If it is, does it matter? I think Boris Johnson really does believe in leaving the profits of private companies in their own back pocket. I think he really does believe in that. People have said he's a social liberal. That's been debated. People have said that he likes spending money. That's debated. But I think, I think both of those are true. There's no real, there's no real evidence that he believes in redistribution through taxes on wealth. There's no real evidence of that. All the spending that we saw during COVID and there were massive spending increases by the state, that was all deficit funded. And I think with the broader political context of Russia, and obviously hydrocarbons right now are making a heck of a lot of money. But if there is deglobalization and companies like BP and Shell, God willing, can no longer access um, maybe certain reserves around the world, over the next several years. I think that's highly plausible. I think Russia could be a, a template for that, in fact. Then uh, you have you would have problems, I think, of the British government, a conservative government, doing that to na- quote-unquote national champions like BP and Shell, who are some of the biggest companies uh, registered on the London Stock Exchange. So I think it makes political sense in terms of Tories' internal logic and their base. What is the base of the Conservative Party? It's billionaire media owners, uh, it's the ultra rich. It's, you know, hydrocarbon economy. And then, of course, it's people like, you know, just homeowners, older voters. Now, clearly, those latter two groups would really like to see a windfall tax. But I think the former ones, not so sure. And so this is more of um, a wedge issue within the Conservative Party than I, than I think perhaps that introduction permitted. I don't think it's the same as when George Osborne did it, because I think the political climate is just entirely different. And I think there probably is a concern within the elite that once you start introducing windfall taxes on fossil fuels, given the current climate, given the fact we're going to see real wages fall to the the largest extent since 1956, I think people elsewhere would say, well, it's going to be us next. And that's not why they donate money to the Conservative Party. That's why many of them are in the Conservative Party, precisely to stop things like that. So yes, it makes electoral sense. I think if it was about dominating the centre ground, if it was about parking their tanks on Labour's lawn, as pundits love to say, then they would do precisely that. Second point you asked, would it make much of a difference? The answer is no. Windfall tax and the revenues it would generate, 
as being touted by the Labour Party. For instance, not to knock that policy, we should do it. But in terms of what it would do, it's a one-off thing. We're looking at two very bad years here. We're looking at 2022 as a year of rising interest rates, rising inflation, low growth. But 2023 is being postulated by the likes of the Bank of England and the Centre for Economics and Business Research as 0% growth. So we could have a recession in 2023. So you've got a couple of really hard years coming out of the pandemic. I think we need to be frank with people and say, well, look, the, the revenues generated from a one-off windfall tax won't really help. I mean, it's great. It's great if it can fund you know, every household getting five, six hundred pounds through the mail as a one-off payment. Fantastic. Let's do it. But it's not a panacea. No, I agree. I think my position on the windfall tax, and I suppose, you know, Labour's approach to it is that I think it has been a very successful policy to put forward and sort of say, whose side are you on? You know, it's quite hard for people to work out why the Conservatives won't go for this. And the only explanation is they are in hock to the, the fossil fuel giants, which is very helpful for the Labour Party. As a policy, which is commensurate to the challenge we face, you know, not remotely good enough. But then I suppose Keir Starmer would argue that that's not the job of the opposition. The job of the opposition is to put down a line in the sand. And in this situation, one of the few ones where they you know, seem to have done that reasonably successful. Let's go to a few chats. So in the YouTube chat, Joy Lloyd writes, what are the odds that when the Sue Gray report is published, they also announce that they are going to have a windfall tax after all? Um, quite possible, yes. I've seen sort of people speculating that potentially they're holding back some cost of living crisis policies to try and move the news agenda on whenever that is um, released, which would be pretty disgusting because they're making people wait when this is very urgent. I mean, in a way, that's optimistic because I'm, I'm really not sure they do have any more cost of living crisis policies up their hat, but it's a potential. Um, David says, I work in the energy industry. We have to invest in renewables or we are toast. Windfall tax or not tax the energy industry or tax the fossil fuel energy industry, of course. And I agree with that. It's also notable that when you get the Conservatives coming out, their argument in favour of not having windfall tax is that we need these companies to invest more in extraction from the North Sea, which is actually a terrible policy. We do not need them to invest more in extraction for the North Sea. We need to tax them because they're making super normal profits. And then we need to direct that money to help alleviate the cost of living crisis. As we've been saying, it won't be enough. And state-led investment in a green economy. It's not that complicated. Saul with a fiver, 18th of June, a TUC march and rally in London. Most unions are arranging transport as well as local trades councils and other orgs. So let's all get out and protest. Um, yeah, I think there seems to be a fair amount of momentum around this protest demanding action to tackle the cost of living crisis. We've got lots more coming up on tonight's show and lots more around the issue of a windfall tax. But first, last week, we launched our fundraiser to grow Navarra Media's supporter base. We put a video out where you can meet the team further. Here's a snippet. Clap. Okay, fine. <laughs> on Tiski Sour, we explain why the cost of living crisis isn't an accident. It's not because of the war in Ukraine. It's not inevitable. It's a political choice engineered by Sunak and dictated by a Tory ideology that at its very core seeks to protect the obscene wealth of the super rich at the expense of the majority of us. Every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, our producers, Fox and Alex, Stephen, our researcher and me, work together to make a show that really holds the establishment to account. We try to fill the gaps in the coverage of the crisis that other outlets simply ignore. And with our guests and co-hosts, we ask, 
What would a government that protects society from mass exploitation do? How do we make a world where people are protected from terrifying poverty? Since this time last year, we've grown from a two-person to a four-person team. We've live-streamed over 150 shows three times a week. We've got 2.5 million views last month. We want to keep scrutinizing mainstream news narratives and politicians' lies while exposing the forces that drive them navaramedia.com slash support. That's where you can become a regular supporter. As we've been talking about for the past week, the, the aim of this fundraiser is to get us to 10,000 paying supporters. We currently have 6,000 and that is you know, edging up during this fundraiser. We want to get it up to 10,000 so we can continue to grow as an organization. Of course, we are ever grateful for everyone who is already donating on a regular basis or on a one-off basis to Navarra Media. You make all of this possible. Next story. As more and more Tories soften to the idea of a windfall tax on the energy giants, the man at the top remains inflexible. Boris Johnson is still resistant to the idea, despite repeated calls from MPs, charities, and business leaders. Indeed, even BP's boss described the company as a cash machine after record profits last year. So why not treat it like one? Well, Johnson's official reason for opposing the tax is that it will discourage investment. But an article in the Financial Times suggests more self-interested motives could be at play. They report, The Liberal Democrats have urged Downing Street to clarify whether Boris Johnson, who is resisting the idea of an energy windfall tax, has discussed the issue with his informal political advisor, Sir Linton Crosby, whose companies represent various clients in the oil and gas industry. Linton Crosby, of course, has a long-running relationship with both Boris Johnson and the Tories more generally. He ran Johnson's London mayoral campaigns in 2008 and 2012, and he ran the Tory general election campaigns in 2005 and 2015. And when he's not advising right-wing politicians, his firm CT Group advises megacorporations, and they include, as the FT suggests, big players in gas and oil. And Crosby is not the only connection between CT Group and the Tory government. David Canzini is Johnson's official advisor. He was Crosby's protege at CT Group until recently, and he is reported by multiple newspapers to be one of the loudest voices in Downing Street against a windfall tax on energy firms. The reason cited is that he sees it as unconservative, according to the FT. Downing Street refused to say on Thursday whether Johnson had discussed the energy windfall tax with Crosby, one of his long-standing political allies. Number 10 also refused to say whether Crosby and Canzini had discussed the issue with each other. It all smells a bit fishy to me, and that's especially because when it comes to mixing business and politics, Crosby has form. One example is from 2013, when the Conservatives were expected to introduce plain packaging for cigarettes in the Queen's speech. After conversations with Crosby, David Cameron ditched the policy. At the Times, eyebrows were raised because CT Group had just bagged a lucrative contract with Philip Morris, a tobacco firm. But of course, Crosby denied any connection between these two events. Crosby said, at no time... Have I had any conversation or discussion with or lobbied the Prime Minister or indeed the Health Secretary or the Health Minister on plain packaging or tobacco issues? Any claim that I have sought to improperly use my position as part-time campaign advisor to the Conservative Party is simply false. But it seems 
what Crosby said was false. In 2014, The Guardian revealed that he wasn't telling the truth. The minister in charge of plain packaging had been Lord Marland, and according to The Guardian, Documents released by the Intellectual Property Office under the Freedom of Information Act show Crosby did lobby Marland just before taking up his political role. In an email sent to Marland at 10.32am on the 1st of November 2012, carrying the subject line IP, that's Intellectual Property Issues, and Plain Packaging. So, Crosby used his connection to the Tory government to lobby on behalf of another firm he was advising. Aaron, do you think he could be doing the same thing again here? Seems very likely, huh? I'm a bit disappointed you didn't um, mention his nickname, the Lizard of Oz, which Ooh. I have to say is, uh, is one of the more thoughtful and appropriate nicknames in uh, Anglophone politics. I mean, this guy, Michael, he follows bad politicians and bad politics around like a bad smell. He was involved with uh, John Howard in Australian politics for a very long time. He was involved in the 2015 Canadian election which, of course, uh, Justin Trudeau won. And in that election, he tried to make Muslim women covering their faces the wedge issue uh, of that election. I once tweeted something about how he was responsible for Islamophobic campaigns, how he was associated with Islamophobic campaigns. I did not call him one. He and his lawyers uh, threatened to sue me for libel. They didn't because what I said was accurate. These are Islamophobic campaigns. If you're repeatedly seeking to deploy uh, Muslim people as a wedge issue in politics, then uh, I think it's fair to say that's Islamophobic. On the other stuff, on the hydrocarbon stuff, look at Canada, look at Australia, and now look here at the United Kingdom. There is a clear relationship between this ensemble of powerful billionaire, millionaire interests, multinational companies, and and what they call centre-right politics. Of course, there's nothing remotely centre or sensible about the strategy uh, adopted by quote-unquote conservative parties in relation to fossil fuels over the last 20 years. We, we, we talk now about decarbonizing, Michael. Oh, isn't it great? 50% of our electricity comes from renewable sources or from nuclear. That should have happened in, in 2005. You know, <laughs> By not doing what we should have done then, we, we've probably locked in two degrees warming, which will have horrific consequences at the end of the century. And people like Linton Crosby are overwhelmingly I think, responsible for that in terms of the broader political forces, which meant we failed to act. You can talk about Rupert Murdoch, you can talk about the politicians leading that charge, and I think you can talk about people like Linton Crosby. Importantly, when he was paid for political consulting in the UK, as I understand it, he was operating through a shell company in Malta, and he was being paid dividends through that shell company. What's the corporation tax in Malta? Well, my wife is Maltese, I'm lucky enough to have her as my wife, so I know this. It's 5%. So we're dealing with people who don't want to pay taxes, who want to ensure that inequality only gets worse, and that we fail to address the challenges of the 21st century. These people, people like Linton Crosby, will live in infamy and ignominy long after they're gone. And I hope they know that. I hope they know that. I hope they know that once they're gone, because none of us have fought this life for very long, Michael, uh, that once they're gone, they will be remembered as terrible people who only did a disservice to humankind. But I'm getting it in now, Michael, so he can hopefully hear this before he passes on. We started this section talking about their their relationship to big business and how that can affect policy. We do want to talk about as well what has been central to, to the politics of, of, of Crosby and his acolytes, which is essentially racism. And we're going to talk about this because 
Crosby and his acolytes are still very closely connected to the Johnson administration. And the recent history of Crosby campaigns could give a clue as to where UK politics could go next. In 2005, when Crosby ran Michael Howard's unsuccessful general election campaign, he came up with posters like this. It's not racist to impose limits on immigration. And at the bottom, are you thinking what we're thinking? Which is almost, it's almost like saying, by the way, this is a dog whistle at the bottom of your poster. He also had as a poster in that election campaign, how would you feel if a bloke on early release attacked your daughter? And then again, are you thinking what we're thinking? These have been, you know, handily vandalized, which uh, in this case seems rather appropriate. As I say, on posters, Crosby usually sticks to dog whistles, but in private, he's apparently more explicit. This appeared in a Mail on Sunday report about Crosby's behavior during Boris Johnson's 2008 mayoral campaign. They write, Mr. Crosby said Mr. Johnson should concentrate on traditional voters instead of, quote, effing Muslims. The source added, quote, he definitely used that phrase and said, Linton's view was that chasing the Muslim vote and other ethnic groups was a waste of time. And he frequently expressed himself in very strong terms. Some people found it very offensive. I imagine viewers will also remember Zach Coldsmith's incredibly racist 2016 mayoral campaign. Again, that was run by Crosby and it featured messaging like this. On Thursday, are we really going to hand the world's greatest city to a Labour Party that thinks terrorists are its friends? And then you've got a picture from 7-7. Of course, Labour's mayoral candidate was Sadiq Khan, a Muslim. That headline was in the Daily Mail for a piece written by Zach Goldsmith. And of course, the Goldsmith campaign would ultimately be unsuccessful. But the racism was a direct response to the Tory candidate falling behind in the polls, much like Boris Johnson is today. And Crosby's man in number 10 does seem to be the key figure encouraging Johnson to tack right to try and secure his survival. According to The Times, in the past fortnight, Canzini has made two high-profile interventions, pushing for a hardline approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol and moving to block a windfall tax on oil and gas companies. He has also played a significant role in hardening the Prime Minister's tone on trans rights. He has told government advisers to focus relentlessly on identifying wedge issues the Conservatives can use to delineate themselves from Labour and the Liberal Democrats in the run-up to the 2024 election. He has hailed the government's policy of sending migrants to Rwanda as an exemplar. They go on to write, Canzini is fond of citing Crosby's instructions to, quote, get the barnacles off the boat. And this focus on Conservative issues saw him take a key role in culling marginal legislation from the Queen's speech. In what was dubbed the, quote, third session scrub, employment rights legislation, a ban on foie gras and a ban on trans conversion therapy were all dropped. In their place comes a relentless focus on issues such as the economy, Brexit, immigration and law and order, which saw the Prime Minister cite his priorities as crime, crime, crime in Cabinet this week. Aaron, we've seen this before. Crosby and his acolytes do seem to be coming to the fore again. So will Crosby's priorities be the centre of gravity of British politics until the next general election? Yeah, I suspect so. I, I really suspect so. It's important to say he doesn't always get his way, that he doesn't win. In 2016, Sadiq Khan won. In Canada, Justin Trudeau won. Uh, and in 2017, they had Linton Crosby help with Theresa May. He was called in, of course, after a disastrous start to that election campaign for the Conservative Party. And he, he didn't really produce the goods. And the reason why was because Labour running on a 
a platform of, I think, quite blue-collar social justice issues, regional inequality, pay, public services, helping left-behind areas reconnect to the national and global economy. These were all things which really defanged his culture war attacks. And, and that's often how he's tried to operate. He's tried to create, like term obviously makes clear, draw a wedge between left and right on specific issues where he thinks he can win, surprise, surprise, 52-48, immigration, tax, welfare reform, criminal justice. So do not expect the conservatives to talk about legalizing cannabis or, or driving deeper into conversations like regional inequality. I think, I think leveling up has died. I think if you're serious about leveling up, you first don't vote conservative in 2019. But even if you do, and I think some conservatives really believe in it, like Ben Houchin and certain people around Boris Johnson, I think Lyndon Crosby really couldn't give a rat's ass. So that I think is also history. Where I disagree with you, Michael, as you said a little bit earlier on that, you know, you don't think Sunak could do very much. I think with Linton Crosby and Sunak now, I think we'll, we'll be seeing big tax cuts next year. I think that because, of course, as I've said before, rising inflation has one upside, which is, of course, rising tax receipts on VAT. Things are getting more expensive. So the VAT, of course, is going up as well. We're looking at tens of billions of pounds there. So I, I would expect some significant tax cuts, some big culture war issues on on immigration, for instance. And I think attacks, attacking the public sector. We're beginning to see that, of course, the, the kite flying saying that 90,000 people can be done away with in the civil service. I think that's now going to be the, the ballast of this Johnson uh, administration going into 2024. Realistically, that is quite popular with about 35% of the public. It will, I think, probably stop the sinking, stop the rot to a certain point. But I also don't think it can, it can win you a majority. In 2015, we did see that happen, however. You know, Lyndon Crosby did secure a very surprising conservative majority with David Cameron of about 15, 20 MPs, I can't recall exactly, with precisely that strategy. That was because Labour broadly collapsed in Scotland and uh, UKIP caused it major problems in the north of England. Of course, they came through uh, in the form of the Brexit party multiple years later and, of course, with 2019 those voters go to the Tories. I wonder, without that issue of Brexit and offering a referendum in 2015, does David Cameron win that majority? I suspect he doesn't. And I think we'd be in similar territory again with Johnson in 2024. And it is important to note, you know, especially after 2015, I remember sort of everyone talking about Linton Crosby as if he was a magician, basically. You know, he had this sort of mythical ability to win elections. As you say, he's not invincible. He lost in 2005, lost in 2016. And I have to say, sometimes when you see Boris Johnson stand up in, in Parliament and very crudely try and make these pivots to so-called wedge issues, it's often not very convincing. So in PMQs, last week, you had sort of Keir Starmer say, why won't you do the windfall tax, et cetera, et cetera. You're divvering. And Boris Johnson just stood up and said, well, Keir Starmer can't even define a woman. And everyone's just like, what? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure he was told to do that by Crosby or his acolytes, you know, by Canzini. He's as the Times reporting, he's saying go hard on trans rights. But I do think, you know, whatever your position on trans rights, it's just a, it, it's so transparent what he's trying to do. I don't think that will work, especially when we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Like maybe it would it would work in dividing a wedge among the public and among voters if there wasn't anything that serious to think about. You know, if people weren't that politicized. But given we're going through the biggest fall in living standards since the 1950s. I can see why they would want to change the subject, 
but I'm not sure people are going to go along with them. And obviously, you know, the Labour Party's job is, is to make sure that doesn't happen. Keep that argument on economic inequality because people are very, very open to those arguments right now. Let's go to our next story. The Australian Labour Party's Anthony Albanese has been elected as the nation's prime minister. Albanese originally came from the left of the party, though ran a centrist campaign. And in his victory speech, he brought up his working class background. It says a lot about our great country that the son of a single mum who was a disability pensioner who grew up in public housing down the road in Camperdown... can stand before you tonight as Australia's Prime Minister. Albanese defeated the right-wing Liberal National Coalition, whose share of seats collapsed. Labour have reached the 76 seats needed for a majority. That's eight up on the last time around. And the Liberal National Coalition have lost 18 seats, down to 59. The losing Libnat campaign was headed by Scott Morrison, the incumbent Prime Minister, Morrison is a right-wing anti-migrant zealot who's been one of the most vociferous opponents of climate action. This was his concession speech. I've always believed in Australians and their judgment, and I've always been prepared to accept their verdicts. And tonight they have delivered their verdict, and I congratulate Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party, and I wish him and his government all the very best. A statement like that should not be notable, but after Donald Trump tried to steal his election, it's hard to know how far Murdoch-backed right-wingers will go. And Morrison, like Trump, did have the support of Australia's right-wing media moguls, a fact evident in how Australia's second-most-watched TV network covered the election results. This was a segment specifically on MPs who lost their seats. Now Scott Morrison uh, and his appearance on 60 Minutes. So it is time to crank up the robot, crank up the baggage conveyor belt, go to Cuba and start sending them on their way. And who is first? It is the ALP's member for Griffiths. Goodbye, Terry Butler. Big call. Uh, You might regret that one. Okay, all right. We might live to regret it, but for now, Terry, it's off to Cuba. All right. Have fun there. Thank you, Terry. All right, we are going to do Wentworth. Would someone like to do the honours with oh, uh, I can't. Dave Sharma? No, no. Julie Bishop? No, yeah, no, no disappointing. Just like Dave Sharma is, uh, was a future leader of the Liberal Party. So, yes, the fact that he would be packing his bags and leaving politics at the moment, I think, is a big loss to the Liberal Party. And the story of the night, in fact, is a bloodbath for the Liberals. The National Party, we'll speak out about in a minute, really has done quite well. But the Liberal Party has bled all over the map. So it would be farewell to Dave Sharma. And I bring in Kate Ellis again from earlier in the night where these people are losing their jobs, they are losing their careers and they go to the supermarket, they go to the local schools and families see them and you feel, you feel it. So, yep. And it's also their staff. You saw there one of the few Labour Party candidates who lost their seat getting sent to Cuba, which I presume is a symbol of them being supposedly hard left communists. The right wing Liberal candidate confusingly also had a Cuba sticker on the suitcase he was in. But the host just mourned how sad it was for a right-winger to have lost. Of course, the biggest ballast for the right in Australia is Rupert Murdoch, but some from the Australian Labour Party seem to have successfully called his bluff. This is how former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd engaged with a Murdoch-owned Sky News Australia during the campaign. I would assume that you guys in the Murdoch media would find any piece of dirt on any Labour candidate anywhere in the country. But she tweeted it. To have a go. She tweeted it. No, but I know what you guys are like. But she tweeted it, though. 
That's right. But you'll do anything anything that Rupert says to undermine. No, Labor. we won't. No, no, no. It's a question I have, Mr. I think everyone. I think everyone here agrees with me. <laughs> no, no. That's a question from me. So, can I ask you, Mr. Rudd? Though, while, while I have you live on Sky News, are you are you hopeful of a new of a role with an a, a Albanese Labor government if he's elected? Are you hopeful of maybe an ambassadorship? Um, again, I can always rely upon you people to pose questions I've already answered. And the answer to that is no. And you know that. Um, and furthermore, if you guys had any soft respect at the Murdoch media, you would start adopting something approaching balanced coverage. Am I right? Yeah. We're here trying to speak to you and, and obviously the candidate. I'm, I spoke with Michelle a little bit earlier. But you're a tool for Murdoch. Keir Starmer, I hope you're watching. And another lesson Starmer could learn, Labour didn't win this alone. And in fact, their vote share fell compared to the last federal elections in 2019. They're down one percentage point and they remain on a lower share than the Liberals or the Liberal National Coalition. But what got Labour over the line was second preference votes from independents and the Greens. The Greens, with 12% of the vote, had their best election ever. To find out more about the Aussie elections, I spoke to Tom Ballard, a comedian who hosts the Serious Danger podcast, which has covered the election from the perspective of the Greens. I started by asking whether Saturday's vote shows Australia has moved decisively to the left. In a way, yes. I mean, I sure hope so. That's, that's for sure. Pretty extraordinary result. The Tory, the Conservative government, the coalition lost 17 seats, including some really high profile people. The Treasurer lost his seat. Some real libertarian psychos lost their seats. We love to see that. Some social conservatives lost their seats, and particularly in these massive heartland seats, these seats that have been in liberal, that's our Conservative Party, hands for ever since Federation, have gone to these what are called teal independents. These basically they're disaffected liberals. They're people who, you know, maybe 10 years ago would have voted for the Liberal Party and happily run as liberal candidates who were just sick to death of this conservative government's stance on climate change, on integrity, and on their attitudes to women. So they ran these independent campaigns. They weren't specific parties, but they were individual candidates, and they fully beat them and trounced them, which was great. The Greens, the party that I uh, quite like, uh, increased their representation by 400%. And, of course, the Labor Party won a government. It looked like it might have been a minority government, but it looks like they're on track to actually get a, a majority seat. So that is fantastic. The general wisdom is Australian politics is sort of deals within the centre. We have compulsory voting across the board, so that's sort of a factor, and there are plenty of horrible positions that our Labour Party has taken, which I'm sure that you can uh, relate to in the UK. But overwhelmingly, this felt like a rejection and a shift to the left in a lot of really very cool ways. So thumbs up to that. On one level, is it a disappointment if the Labour Party get an absolute majority? That presumably will mean parties like the Greens have less influence. Yes, the, the strategy from the Greens generally was to have more influence in on the crossbench, to get a minority Labour government and have a whole bunch of Greens MPs there so that we could push the Labour Party further and faster, particularly on climate action and on, you know, lifting poor people out of poverty, you know, actual good things that you would think the Labour Party would be on board with. That strategy has, I mean, it's worked out very well for the Greens in terms of increasing their representation. But yes, with the Labour Party, with a majority in the lower house, they will form government and will be able to introduce legislation as a majority themselves. That was also the strategy of those teal independents. They were hoping to, you know, pack the crossbench so that they could influence the government. Looks like they will have way less influence than you would think, even though they did pick up a whole bunch of seats amongst them. But in the Senate, in the upper house, the state's house, that is where the Greens have formed a big part of the crossbench. That's where the party will have some serious influence. The Labor Party says they're not budging at all on their climate targets of a reduction of 43% by 2030, even though that puts us on track to two degrees of warming. 
but certainly this vote sort of says that's bullshit. You got to you got to do better than that, my friends. You got to raise the bar. God damn it! And that's what we'll be pushing for. Yeah. And what does this election result mean in terms of climate change? I mean, obviously, f- from people outside Australia, one of the most significant outcomes could be that Australia stops being that block to climate action that it that it has been. You're suggesting they won't necessarily take a leading role, but w- will they stop dragging their heels when it comes to, for example, international climate agreements? That's certainly the pitch, right? So Labor ran on the idea of ending the climate wars. And this has been an issue that in Australia, which, well, you know, we make up a small amount of the world's total emissions, we're massive per capita emitters, particularly when you count in all the emissions from the stuff that we dig up and sell overseas and they burn and that cooks the planet. We're extremely good at that. And the capital forces involved in that obviously love donating to our political parties and wielding political influence. So yes, over the past decade or more than that, certainly it has been a pretty toxic issue in Australian politics and the Labor Party is selling this as an end to all the climate wars. Now, again, with those unambitious unambitious targets in my view, I feel like this issue is going to keep coming up and be a big deal, particularly if the now defeated Liberal National Coalition, as seems to be the way, uh, are planning on moving further to the right. They're sort of reading this result as a chance for them to double down, to say, forget about all that climate change nonsense and, and carry on. So that'll be an interesting way that plays out. But certainly the Albanese Labor government is saying that, you know, this this is it. We're actually going to take action on climate change now. We're going to become a renewable energy superpower. So it's certainly, you know, it's good news on that front. Yeah. And Australia is potentially the only country where Rupert Murdoch is more influential than he is in, in the UK. To what extent can this result be seen as a rebuke to, to him and his media organisations? Uh, look, I love it. I love it. It's a little bit, I wouldn't, I don't want to say it's Corbyn in 2017 vibes, but certainly, and I was just watching the, on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, there was just a program called Media Watch, which is yeah, a 15 minute show where they just basically dissect media politics over the past week. And they just did this great special showing that the Murdoch media empire went as hard as possible to keep the conservatives in. Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, had a front page spread on the Herald Sun in Melbourne that was literally headlined, why you should vote for me. And it had a two page like colour spread on the inside. Like Rupert did all that he possibly could. He went really hard. And Australians said no. Now, to be fair, the Labor Party still played the Murdoch game. The Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, did a front page of the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, sort of saying, I'm not a working class hero, I'm a working class hero, you know, playing along the game with transphobic questions like, can men have babies? He said, no, all that kind of disgusting bullshit. But certainly the diminishing influence of the print media generally and certainly of um, Rupert Media stuff is very encouraging, particularly watching Sky News' coverage uh, on election night, our Sky News is even further to the right than, than I think the British one, and seeing all those losers cry. That was um, that was a wonderful time in everyone's lives, yeah. Albanese hasn't taken the same approach as, as Kevin Rudd, because we often see here videos, we've shown them before, we've shown one, one today of Kevin Rudd really being very confrontational when it comes to the Murdoch-owned press. Is, is that not necessarily the stance of the Labour Party as a whole? That certainly hasn't been Albanese's strategy. I mean, Kevin Rudd, again, got the endorsement, basically, you know, played the Murdoch game back in 2007 when he was elected as prime minister, I think it's fair to say, and sort of courted that Murdoch endorsement. And Murdoch certainly got on board towards the end when it seemed like the Howard government was over and that Rudd was pretty good chance. He has since developed this whole anti-Murdoch analysis. He's called for a royal commission into the Murdoch media empire and organized a petition, which got like about half a million signatures or something like that. Albanese was very careful to distance himself from that. He sort of said, hey, look, the media is the media and you can't complain about it. You've got to just deal with it and move on. 
and he would regularly write opinion pieces in the Daily Telegraph, for example, which, again, I think is a reasonable strategy if you want to try and talk to as many people as you possibly can when you're running to be prime minister. Whether, yes, the Labor Party will ever get on board officially in government with the idea of a royal commission into the Murdoch media empire remains to be seen. But I think, particularly with the appalling and atrocious behaviour of the media across this election, everyone is pretty keen for some media reform pretty soon, please. That was Tom Ballard speaking to me earlier today. We've got a couple of comments on this. Duck Tran, so the Americans got rid of their Trump. We Aussies got rid of our Trump. When are you going to get rid of your clown? We're working on it. That's all I can say. I suppose the other thing I can say is the Americans got rid of Trump. I'm a bit worried he's going to be back in two years' time, but let's not assume the worst. Baz Cams, on a similar theme, Trump out, Morrison out, next, Johnson. We have a silly story to end the show with. I usually try to ignore the social media feeds of the Murdoch-owned talk TV, but this weekend, one tweet caught my eye. It read, World War II veteran John Pierce is releasing a single to honour the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. She was a real inspiration during the war and has continued to lead by example. That's a quote from him. Thank you, your majesty, this is the bit that got me, is a reworking of Go West by the village people. Sort of every sentence of that tweet just... I found very enjoyable. We're going to have a look at a clip from that music video now. Your Majesty, I am the same age as you. And I fought just like you. Under our King George. He'd be so proud of you. We know you love us. Celebrate your love. The last one. We have no protest That you are the best Your Majesty On your jubilee For 70 years For the joy and cheers From the Commonwealth We all toast your hand my reaction to videos like that is normally the same, which is the people who are over 75, I kind of find it kind of cute. And the people who are younger than that, I find it a little bit creepy. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this more generally. Um, from next Thursday, Britain will spend a four-day weekend celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. How unbearable is it all going to get? Well, Michael, I've got a question for you. Where's this chap's middle-aged daughter? Because we saw with Captain Tom that somebody was trying to make a pretty penny out of uh, a very marketable older man who was trying to channel the national zeitgeist. Where is the middle-aged daughter? Uh, we, we did see a, a woman, maybe in her 50s, doing that little dance. I'm wondering if that's Pierce Jr. <laughs> so, uh, look, we need to get the Navarra sleuths from our articles team uh, finding that out. <sighs> We should do, yeah. I mean, we should probably say we don't, we don't know the precise motives of Captain Tom's daughter when it came to his rise to fame, but there were some, some subsequent events which raised questions, weren't there? Let's wrap up there. Thanks, Aaron. Been a pleasure being joined by you on a Monday for a change. We will have Ash on a Friday. It was a switch up this week. Thanks for having me on. I think I may be back on Friday, Michael, because Ash is hosting a Twitter space on Thursday about the media, which is a very exciting part of our fundraiser. So uh, I may be joining you again, sadly. I know that's going to be bad news for our audience, but uh, it's good news for me. (laughs) 
Aaron, I, I, I love every, every minute I spend with you live on YouTube is something I treasure. For now, thank you for watching. Do check out our fundraiser video. We've got lots of like behind the scenes content. It is actually a very entertaining 10 minute video. I do recommend that. If you have already um, contributed to the fundraiser, thank you so much. We really want to get to 10,000 supporters by the end of it. So if you, you haven't already signed up, please do go to navaramedia.com slash support. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.